VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Before we get to today's show, an announcement. June 21st, mark it down. We have a new spin-off podcast that is going live on that day, June 21st. It is called The Pivot. It is a docu-series on Silicon Valley. Think of it as a set of mini documentaries. And if you are a sports fan, it's like 30 for 30, but about tech. So yeah, it's not a sit-down interview show like this one. It's more of a produced series of narrative kind of stories. And I, along with my producer Chica, big shout out to her, have been working on this for months. In fact, that is why I'm in London this week. We've been in the studio recording, getting the first few episodes ready for prime time. I'll be providing updates over the coming weeks. We'll have a trailer for you shortly. So if you like this show, you're going to really like The Pivot. I'm excited to share it with you and get it out there. But now, on to today's show. Yo, technology. What is it all about? There's actually two banking systems in America. There's one that rewards you for using it. And then there's another that charges you huge amounts of fees. There were, I think last year, $320 billion in transactions that went through things like cash checking, pawn shops, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Like that's a huge volume. And then of that, more than $150 billion in fees. So translating that to someone that lives in world one, that's like, I have $100,000 in my yeah. bank account, and at the end of the year, I find out that my bank charged me $10,000. It's expensive to be poor. This week on Danny in the Valley, we have Angela Strange, who is a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and an oracle on all things fintech, finance, the future of money, etc., she has very kindly agreed to sit down to answer five big questions about finance and technology and how they're coming together and how things are going to look very different in the not-too-distant future. It's a fascinating chat, especially about how our social media feeds and other digital footprints are being incorporated already into all kinds of important stuff like life insurance, your credit rating, yeah. Kind of creepy, kind of crazy, but it's happening already. Anyhow, I think you'll enjoy this one, so I'm going to get out of the way. And here she is, Angela Strange of Andreessen Horowitz. I wish yeah. I had a British accent. So don't we all? <laughs> don't we all? Cool. That's it. We're live. That's fantastic. easy peasy. So you kind of swim in the world of finance, financial services, fintech. 
before our conversation, I was looking at some of the things you had written and uh, some of the presentations you'd made. And I thought one interesting way to kind of just set the scene is to talk about keywords, internet keywords. So I'm teeing you up here, but what are the most expensive keywords and why are they the most expensive? What does that say about the kind of the power of the industries they represent and how difficult it is to disrupt them? Yes, you're you're teeing you're teeing you're, te- you're, te- you're te- <laughs> te- me up right well. Out. Well, number yeah. number one, I think, is mesothelioma, but a a very close second is number it, one is mesothelioma. It is, but a very very close second is insurance, followed by mortgages. Um, and there's a strong correlation between market size and price of keywords. Uh, right. It's an insurance topic that you know I think about a lot. Many people, yeah. if you're fortunate, you don't think about your insurance all that often. But this is a five trillion dollar market worldwide. And one of my favorite statistics that both sites, like how difficult it is to create a new insurance company, but also the opportunity, is that one in 10 Fortune 500 companies is an insurance company. Every single one of these companies was created before World War II. Wow. So now, as anyone who's spent some time in the industry knows that there is a whole new space called insure tech. In classic fashion, it is accompanied by a very large conference in Vegas where everyone excited about this space shows up. <laughs> it's thing, it always, is always in, in Vegas. Vegas. Well, where else are you going to host? You know, 10,000. Well, lots of places, but it's a great place to host. But I think, I think now really is going to be the time where there is potential for a new company to enter to enter that market like um, a big i'll say apple-ish company like a, something that's really the new big beast yep yeah because if you think like breaking down an insurance company what does an insurance company do at its core they acquire customers they underwrite or they they risk score the customers and then they have to manage and process claims. Yeah. And you know this started 300 years ago. The history of insurance is, is actually very interesting. But like the building blocks of an insurance company at their core have not changed all that much in the last 300 years. Yeah. And if you look at what's happened even in the last 5, arguably that's more innovation than, you know, what's gone on in the last few centuries. And so I really do think in the next decade or two there's going to be some next there's going to be some new insurance giants of brands that you have never heard of before so let's take out the crystal ball and go say forward 10 years and say my case for example i have two kids i live in a home let's assume that i'm still in that home 10 years from now so i have a home insurance i have life insurance i have medical insurance car insurance is there any one of those that is going to be dramatically disrupted because it feels like we have just we're creating this these huge trails of data with our phones mm-hmm. about where we go, what we do, what we eat, what we buy, etc. But that really hasn't broken through in a major way in terms of how this whole gigantic industry functions or goes about its business. Yep. Um, so maybe a good place to start would just be talking about there's been lots of attempts to create new insurance companies, but it's very, very difficult to break in. There's a few different core reasons and then talk about how the new companies are addressing these. Um, like first off, if you're lucky, you don't think of insurance all that often. It's something that you buy, you put it on auto renew, it's sitting there yeah. in the background. And then the bigger challenge is like if you do think about insurance, think person that's lying awake at midnight trying to figure out like who their life insurance is going to be, then that's the definition of adverse selection, and it's not the customer that you really want to get. And so the acquisition strategy in insurance, hence the expensive keywords, is even harder than financial services at broad, which is which is super difficult. 
expensive keywords. Usually you don't buy it direct. Like insurance is the classic industry of like, where did you get your insurance? Oh, I've got a guy. Um, yeah, well, and so, so it's like I will it's say already I was removed. that guy yeah. back in the day. So I did sell life insurance <laughs> on the side during college because my dad had a company. It's a long story. But anyway, that's how I kind of helped make ends meet in college or pay for my like living expenses was selling term life insurance to airline pilots. Yep. Fantastic. I bet, I bet it was a good job. Uh, it was good in certain ways. <laughs> it wasn't exactly fulfilling. Or it can be a, pro- it can be a profitable job it could, if, you yes, it, if you do it well. Correct, it depends, how you, it depends yeah. how you measure it. Um, and then in the U.S., you've got a, a regulatory and a special regulatory challenge where insurance is regulated state by state. So if you are a new insurance company, you can have a way better underwriting model, but you've got to find customers that are going to buy it. You're competing against the Geico's of the world that spend $1.2 billion in advertising. So lots of opportunity, whole host of challenges. The companies that I'm excited about that are entering now are doing some combination of interesting new data source, which is what you were alluding to. Mm. But then that also has to come with using that data source to have a better customer acquisition model. Let me give you a concrete example. A company called Health IQ, and you look like you could be a Health IQ customer, actually. So here's what Health IQ okay. does. Is they'll say, hey, Danny, you look like you could run a seven-minute mile. Incorrect. Eight minutes, probably. <laughs> anyway, so what I, they do I must say, I hate running, target... and I know you're a runner, so I just <laughs> all right. I, I guess, can't. I can't I guess, stand I guess the wrong sport. What's Unless your, I'm chasing a ball. What's your leader, leisure activity? Basketball. Of but see, there we go. I don't, yeah. I, and I don't. Unfortunately, don't know enough about basketball yeah. to figure out what the right questions yeah. would be. But they had this insight that you know, what do health conscious people love even more than being health conscious in Silicon Valley, especially bragging about being health conscious. Mm-hmm. So catch people at a point in time when they're, they're probably willing to, to click on some of your advertisements. So like I would see, can you run a seven minute mile? You might yep. see something about basketball. Vegans see something about something else. And they started as a Facebook quiz company. This is the data gathering effort. And they would create these quizzes of 20 questions along very specific verticals of health consciousness. And the quizzes questions would go fast enough, like things like, like what's a fruit that vegans don't eat? How much does the barbell lift? Things that you couldn't answer if you didn't actually do that. Yeah. And they were able to cut and amass this massive data set. People almost, love a quiz. Oh, they love quizzes. And it's, it's interesting because it's almost a tautology that, you know, if, if you run or if you weight lift, if you eat really healthy, like you're going to be a better risk from a life insurance yeah. point of view. Yeah, yeah. But life insurance companies and the reinsurers aren't just going to take your word at it. Like you need a data set. Yeah. And they were able to gather that. And then now what they're able to do is almost cream skim this health conscious customer, acquire them for a much cheaper price and offer them a better price life insurance. Right. So now to your point of, you know, you have life insurance, home insurance, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You know, they're, they're a one product company, but there's a pretty obvious extension to once you have a certain type of population, you can then start to layer on more and different insurance. So products. for example, that example, they're effectively using so the social media platform to glean underwriting information. Yep. But then they're, how do they prove that these people are better risks? Ah, 
Yes. Yeah, so this is this is where this gets slightly morbid. Yeah, it's not, life insurance. It's of life insurance. It's, what yeah. are you going to do? Yeah. So they they got millions of people to fill out this quiz, and it is attached to your Facebook profile. And on Facebook, via fairly you know obvious mechanisms, but you can also do a lot more clever data analysis. When someone passes away, their status flips to remembering. There's lots of different messages yeah. posted on their board, and so they were able to correlate that they have a population of millions of people who have filled out the quiz, and then a statistically significantly lower number of deaths than the average population. Population. Right. Yeah. Wow. And so that is just one example of better data, cheaper right. customer acquisition, and there have been a really interesting entry point into this, uh, you know, fairly stagnant industry. Yeah. You think there will be more of that? Because it does feel to me, I don't know if this is a clumsy analogy, but like you think about like the car industry with all of their legacy issues, mm-hmm. and then trying to remake themselves inside out with a new technology and what that means, retooling factories and everything else and pension costs, et cetera. It just feels like it's, for a lot of them, it's just too big of a mountain to climb or they're coming at it the wrong way. Yeah, we have a, an expression I use a lot, which is the battle between the startup and the incumbent is whether the incumbent can get innovation before the startup gets distribution. Right. And so let's apply that to auto insurance. Telematics is probably not going to be a great thing for me. I am not a very good driver. I drive over the speed limit. I commute too much. Heartbreaking. Like my car insurance premium should probably go up if someone was monitoring how I drive. But it doesn't make sense that in the age of all of the data that you can get around driving, that pricing for auto insurance is fairly stagnant. And we've seen the generation one of these, which are these dongles oh, boxes, that used to, yeah, yeah. Dongles that used to yeah. go in the OBD port of your car. And those, those were great in theory, but there's a lot of friction around them and there's never really managed to take off. And so now what you're seeing is this approach from two different directions. Most insurance companies will um, provide you a carrot to you know, download their app, like consent yeah. to having your driving behavior uh, monitored. And you know, for people who are good drivers, like it's probably makes makes a lot of sense. And so you could argue, well, they could have done that faster, but you know, State Farm Progressive already has huge distribution. They've got billions of dollars of advertising budget. And so yeah. they are moving to that new world. Whereas there's the new entrance, like a company like Root, which is targeting consumers and saying, come on, we'll monitor your driving and we'll be able to give you like a new and better rate. Right, right off the bat. So I think you're going to see entrance from both sides, both the startup side and the incumbent side, trying to incorporate some of this. Right. But just to be a bit dystopic, how do you see this playing out in terms of, say, the health IQ, for example? Mm-hmm. The whole idea of insurance is that you put everybody in a big group and then you levelize the cost to a degree. Yep. And so it's the worst risks can still afford it and the best risks are being charged a bit more than they should, but it kind of makes sense. Whereas if you have, if you can parse people into these really specific groups, it feels like the worst off are going to be even worse off. Correct. And I think one of the sort of biggest societal questions that we are struggling with and that we need to, like, as a society, come up with a good answer is especially around health insurance and, you know, what yeah. do you do with, exactly, I think that is a, a major, major, a major problem that needs to be thought of in a very, very thoughtful way. I think for something like driving behavior, to take the complete opposite side, rich people who drive like shit, like we should probably charge them a lot. Like that yeah. would be great. Um, 
uh, like certain populations, like I mean, a good friend who's Mormon, Mormons don't drink. Like, why are they paying for rowdy college students that might take yeah. a risk that they would never take, right? And so that is a population of people that should probably get together and, and self-insure, and that risk pooling would make a lot more sense. Right. That's going to be really interesting how that plays out, because it does feel like all the data is there to really drill down to exactly what, almost you know, on a person-by-person basis, yep. how you live your life. And so for some people, that's going to be really good. And some people, that's going to be very bad. Yeah. I, it, th- I think so. Like, it sounds somewhat creepy to us now. But if you look back, like, not even that long ago, all of the consumer apps that add us add a whole lot of value have some element of data sharing. Like, yeah. Lyft couldn't come pick you up if it didn't know where you were, like, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I think... Before that, we would have thought, well, I'm not going to share my location with this random app. But now, like, a price convenience argument makes a ton of yeah. sense. And I really think that that's going to start to translate more in industries, especially around insurance. Right. And so that kind of leads to my next question, is, which is around this idea of how expensive it is to be poor yeah. and how you address that. Because there's two things here, I guess, f- looking at it, stepping back, supposedly we have a recession about once every 10 years. We're now in year 11 since mm-hmm. 2007, 2008. So it feels like something is coming. If debt is going through the roof, et cetera. And you have things like we did something recently on automation yep. around this idea that, yes, there are more jobs now than there were 20 years ago. They're just less good. They're more insecure. They're worse paid, et cetera. So more, people, more and more people are getting pushed to the bubble. What is happening in your world to address that? So just bring it back to, you know, it's expensive to be poor. And I think depending on where you live or what kind of cognizance you have, that is, is a very strong personal reality or not. Mm. So let's look at the banking system in America. I view it as there's actually two banking systems in America. There's one that rewards you for using it. And then there's another that charges you huge amounts of fees. Imagine you ask a person on the street in downtown San Francisco to name a financial service. They might say, oh, I use Wells Fargo, and I've been thinking about how to optimize my rewards on my credit card. Yeah. That's one way. There is like at least 50% of the population that would name like a cash checking pace or a payday loans. And just to put some numbers around it, there were, I think last year, $320 billion in transactions that went through things like cash checking, pawn shops, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Like that's a huge volume. And then of that, more than $150 billion in fees. So translating that to someone that lives in world one, that's like, I have $100,000 in my yeah. bank account. And at the end of the year, I find out that my bank charged me $10,000. Yeah, you're just like, getting I'm, totally I'm gouged. Totally outraged, yeah. right? But there's a population that like needs financial services even more, and they've got fewer options, and they're way more expensive. Yeah, because you're desperate. You need the, It's a kind of a cash flow problem. You need money now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cash flow problem. And then it's also, like if you look at the budget of someone who lives, you know, even at the median income, but not that much lower. Like, it's just very, very, very tight. And so you don't have room for that number of fees in your life. Yeah. So from an investment perspective, the old view had been, well, yes, this is a really big problem, but these consumers can't pay that much. They're hard to acquire. Therefore, it's a great place for nonprofits and community loans. And, right. and thank goodness that those things are there. The view that I have now is that that is very much changing. And one of the ways, reasons I'm so excited about the sector in which we operate is that there are opportunities for 
again, new massive financial services companies that you haven't heard of yet, but are solving some of these fundamental problems. Like where, where is ripe? If you can give me like one example of something that's ripe for just disruption, because it does feel like if you are on the bubble mm-hmm. and it's hard to get credit, for example, or yep. whatever, you're in, deeply in debt, your options suck. Yeah. So I'll give you, I'll give you two examples which will probably make you think of there's probably 200 more that yeah. we haven't discovered yet. Using the, you know, you're paid every two weeks, your, your cash mm. flow is locked up. Um, company called Earnin. And the founding story of this is very instructive. The CEO is running a company and his employees were coming to him saying, you know, hey, I know I'm not going to be paid until Friday, but it's Tuesday. I've, mm. I've got to pay my rent. I need $50. And he ended up having this spreadsheet where he would track like which employees owed various small dollars amounts to him because they just needed a float in between yeah, yeah. the checks. And he took this out and he started he started this company Earnin with it. And he's able to leverage a lot of the data and tracking mechanisms to to be able to do this more effectively. So the user experience now is you download the Earnin app and Earnin can tell that you have, you know, driven to Panera Bread, you've been there for 8 hours every day Monday to Friday. I hate Panera. <laughs> So uh, my I sister, up, my sister loves I it. I looked she, up your least favorite restaurant and used that <laughs> as an example. <laughs> All right, driven to your favorite—I uh, don't know—sushi restaurant. Um, so you've been there five days a week, and like, let's yeah. imagine you blow a flat tire. Yeah. And this stat, I think, catches a lot of people by surprise, but illustrates the size of the problem. And that's fifty percent of Americans don't have four hundred dollars in savings. You blow a flat tire, it's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars. That's kind of potentially catastrophic. Oh, yeah. You don't have it. And, like, thank goodness you could go take a payday loan, which means, like, you could actually fix your tire and go to work, but you're going to be charged $15 to $20 for every $100 that you take out. Or you've worked five days. Technically, you've earned that income. It's just locked up because your payroll cycle is every two weeks. Earnin can tell when your paycheck hits because they link to your bank account. They can tell that you've been at your job for the last five days and you're able to take out the amount of money that you need, fix your flat tire, keep going to work, and then when you are paid, earn in will retract the money that you're owed. And this is just such an exponentially better service than anything that exists out there that users voluntarily tip earn in for the service. That's how they get paid? Yeah. Tips? Tips. Interesting. Yep. And so you can be like, you know what, if it's a really hard time and you can't afford it, that's fine. But what they've found is just the psychology of the user of having a product that is there for them, that is transparent, it doesn't gouge them, is just such a better alternative than what exists that Earnin is able to support its business via tips from users. Yeah, because we just had Jack Conti on from Patreon. And I just find this whole idea of tipping as a business model fascinating. Yeah. There's something there. Yeah. That, I think, is why, like... There's a class of entrepreneurs now that just have such a uh, strong product sense and deep understanding of what business models could work in an area where I was like, ah, you can't make any money here. Um, and that is just a very creative way to provide a really valuable service and make a viable business at the same time. Yeah, because he said that it was not only was does it work, but it's once someone gets on the platform, it's the increase is predictable. Yep. Like they can model based on once you're you've got a base, people will continue to give you more and more money, et cetera. And it's, it's all voluntary. It's just really, yeah. it's wild. No, it's awesome. <laughs> 
Um, and you mentioned uh, something else. Another, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's, here's another one that I think will make you think around what are other opportunities. So huge food stamps program mm. in the U.S., uh, larger than a lot of people think. Like there's 45 million Americans that are on and off of food stamps in a given year. Yeah. And 11% of groceries are bought by people. 11%? On food stamps. Yes. Wow. And this is a great government support program. But then here's the user experience. So you're on food stamps. The state of, insert where you live, mm-hmm. is going to mail you a physical card. And they'll load it up once a month. And then for you to figure out how much money is left on your card, you flip it over, you call a 1-800 number, press 2, press 3, it tells you your balance. It seems simple, but then when you think practically how this plays out, imagine you are a family of four, it is now day 20 in the month, you're in the grocery store, you're looking down at yeah. your basket, you're calling the 1-800 number. Like Even the smartest people can't budget that well, and this is going to be very, very, very tight. Uh, so the founder of a company called Propel, one of their team grew up on food stamps and so intimately understood this problem. That experience. Yeah, the experience. And it's like... At best, humiliating. At worst, yeah. like you're in really dire straits with your family. And he has created what can be thought of as a, a personal finance app, but that starts with your food stamp spend. Mm. So rather than doing this card 1-800 number thing, you download the Propel app. They can log on for you and figure and show you, okay, you've got $200 left. But then better, you're a family of four. Here's the grocery list you should have. Here are the grocery stores that you should shop at so that you can get the biggest bang for your buck. And it is just, again, such an exponentially better product that they're able to acquire customers very, very cheaply and provide them a very valuable service. Right. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'd be curious to see, to know the people you're coming across, the entrepreneurs, going back to this, these kind of dual factors that are at work here, just the kind of, it feels like some recession is impending at some point, whether some people are looking at that or planning for that, or that is part of their kind of opportunity. Because in the UK, for example, I was living there during the recession, from the ashes came a whole host of new banks, startup banks, challenger banks, all mm-hmm. of the stuff that kind of came up and just be like, okay, we need to, there's an opportunity here. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that is something that 
people you come across are thinking about. And then also, again, with the automation question of just the changing nature of work, what that is leading to in terms of the stuff that you are seeing or how people are thinking about these problems. Yeah, they're definitely thinking about, you know, when pending recession is coming. But I would say that the bigger driver for a lot of the companies I see happened 10 years ago. And this was during the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And so all of these entrepreneurs now who are in their sort of many, you know, many in their 20s or 30s, but there's a whole generation that went through the financial crisis and saw their parents really struggle. They weren't treated that well by existing financial institutions. And now they're in a position to start companies themselves. And if you look at a lot of the surveys that are out there, the mistrust of, and this is especially pronounced in the U.S., of the existing banking system is extremely high. I think that one of the biggest stats it tells us is that two-thirds of millennials don't even have a credit card, which, if you're going to pay it off every month, really doesn't make any sense. You're just going to capture rewards through our yeah. previous conversation. But like, so deep is that mistrust that they prefer to not have that at all. And that tends to be um, one of the biggest drivers right. of the new companies there. And those are the ones that are more focused around trust user experience. And then driver two would be uh, take the Propel case. And that's just a more diverse set of entrepreneurs that grew up, um, I'll say more in reality of where most of the population lives and the types of financial challenges that they face. And they're able to support companies to solve those problems. Right. And obviously we're here, it's quite cushy here in the Bay Area. It is, yes. (laughs) Is there any interest in going beyond these borders, going out into the world? Because obviously there's a whole, I think you mentioned earlier, there's a whole swathe of the world that is not banked. They don't have a bank account, they don't have a credit card, it's like all cash existence. Oh, the opportunity worldwide uh, is way, way larger. I have a presentation I often give called uh, The Next Three Billion, and I I talk about the opportunity in the U.S., but then you look pretty much anywhere else, and just the problems are are way more pronounced, Um, but then so so are the challenges. But I think now, again, entrepreneurs from those countries make their way over to the U.S., they sometimes work in some of the existing fintechs here, and then they choose to go back to solve the problems and where they're from. And so then that brings deep understanding of business model plus deep country experience. And, and is yeah, that effectively the, all enabled by the smartphone? Yeah. So if you look at, and this is where um, you could take country like you know Indonesia or the Philippines, and you can say like, well, credit card penetration was one percent, now it's two percent, now it's three percent. Like this is just not growing that quickly. But that is, you know, you would know this, not the right way to look at it because like the way that this is going to happen is not banks setting up locations yeah. on every street corner. It's smartphone penetration, and that's like up to eighty percent in most countries. And so here's here's a concrete example of a company that is providing small dollar loans fairly effectively. Uh, branch, which started in Kenya. And unlike the U.S. and many countries, there's not actually a credit score in Kenya, which is both a challenge and an opportunity, right? Like you can't call FICO and get them to give you back a number. But the opportunity there is you can use any data that you can gather on your smartphone. And so what Branch does is they'll start by giving you a very small loan, like $2. If you pay it back, they'll give you $4. You can see how this levels up. Mm -hmm. And then via some fairly sophisticated machine learning across many different data sets, they're able to tell things like how up-to-date is your Android operating system tends to be predictive, um, lots of things around different text messages. And so even more than the small dollar lending product that they're building, Branch is in a great position to become the credit score. 
And yeah. now that's just their first products and they can layer on more and more things. Um, and what they're able to do- Kind of like credit karma-ish. After starting in Kenya, they're starting to roll out into, into more countries and learn how to adopt their model to different geographies. And do you see that, the, the, our kind of digital footprints, especially say on social media, becoming important to how, what financial services we are able to access in terms of that being used as a criteria to, to evaluate you as a person? I think that consumers will want to, back to the point of price and convenience, will be very willing to share data that helps them be better scored. Um, so FICO in the U.S. is fairly stagnant. They're trying to do a lot of things around, yeah. you know, incorporating rent payments and, and different stuff. You know, you talk to the, the Credit Karma folks. Yeah. Um, so there is innovation going along there, but there are many, many other data signals that would be um, very predictive of are you a good or bad credit score. Uh, like, not everyone who has a 520 FICO score is created equal. Like, maybe they had a couple of things in their past yeah. that went terribly wrong, but they have, um, you know, if you think of repayment is ability to repay and also willingness to repay, it's very difficult to measure with the current data sets willingness to repay. Yeah. Um, and so with the better score, you'd be able to better separate, you know, which 520 should I lend to? Yeah. And I know you're, we're running short on time, but I guess... Th- my last question is thinking about that in terms of the data, the data sharing, et cetera. I don't know if you have any insight into what regulators are thinking about how you, because you're talking about health insurance, for example, car insurance, credit. These are pretty big fundamental things and how that data is used or shared or accessed. That feels like there's going to be, have to be a whole universe of new rules to govern that. Yep. And so the regulators, and we get a lot of them through A16Z, mm. are you know very aware that the you know startups in many cases are ahead and trying a lot of different things that they ha- don't have a great view on how to regulate. Um, but when you talk to the regulators, they are fairly like they see the benefits of like some of this data could actually allow us to be more inclusive, to provide better yeah. products. Like it's very, very much aligned. The challenge is, for instance, um, let's say that my machine learning models happen to say, oh, no, you shouldn't lend to those four people over there. And it has nothing to do with what yeah. race they are, what, you know, et cetera. But they happen to fall into a protected class. Then that is just a very difficult thing as a regulator to think through. Um, yeah, because it could make a kind of like a, a financial caste system worse in a way if, if the regulation isn't done in a very smart way. I think it's going to make it better. Um, and I think that so you're an optimist, and I'm a journalist, so I have to be pessimist. So. <laughs> I think it's going to make I think it's going to make it way better. Yeah. Um, like think of like back to the you know if you're a payday lending shop and you have a hundred people that come in and you know that half of them aren't going to pay you back because your data model is like you don't have any data models. You yeah. have to charge huge interest rates. Whereas if you're able to be more clever about the signals you collected, you could provide yeah. a better product. Uh, so I think the regulators are starting to do a better job of you know, creating councils with startups yeah. um, and really trying to educate themselves. But I think it is going to be a challenge of, of yeah. keeping up with. You know, we'll have to revisit this, yeah, in, the, in a few. <laughs> All right, thank we'll you. We'll have lunch at Panera Bread. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll choose somewhere else, I think. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Angela for sitting down and taking the time to speak with us. And also for shaming me about my lack of running prowess. 
um, just to kind of take that one on the chin. You can find me in the newspaper, as you can every week in the Sunday Times. You can find me online at thetimes.co.uk. I'm also on Twitter at Danny Fortson. I will be back next week. In the meantime, spread the word, the pivot. It's coming just a few weeks from now. Have a good weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.